Hey, hey, and welcome to that Black Theatre podcast. The podcast that takes you through Black theatre history in the Black Plays Archive. This week, we're discussing two different plays. Natasha Gordon's Nine Night, which is the first play by a Black British woman to be performed in, the, in London's West End in 2018. The second is Jasmine Lee Jones's Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner in 2019. We also have an interview with Jasmine Lee Jones about her place. So, Nad, can you give us an introduction to the plays and what we're discussing? Yeah, the first play, as Nadia said, is Natasha Gordon's Nine Night. First performed at the National Theatre's Dorfman Auditorium in 2018. It was actually performed in April, so that was the same month that the news of of the Windrush scandal broke, uh, discussing how we treat black communities in the UK, particularly those from, from the Caribbean and of Caribbean descent. The play focuses on a black British family living in London and the celebration of a traditional Jamaican wake, also known as a nine night or a dead yard, when the family matriarch Gloria dies. And the main character in it, Lorraine, is, you know, she's been living in her mother's house, nursing her mother until her final moments. And then it's up to Lorraine to really kind of host this nine night. And it's kind of a test, these nine nights of, of celebration, of, um, of, of ritual, of, of, of feasting, of drinking, of music and storytelling that aren't really discussed a lot in like mainstream, like British culture, like, but nine nights are, are important. Um, and the way that I guess Afrocentric and Caribbean cultures celebrate death and I say celebrate and rather than like just simply mourn. We hear about it a lot in Grime which I find really interesting like Stormzy talks about uh, Nine Nights, Kanye talks about Nine Nights, a lot of Grime artists talk about Nine Nights and it's a it is an important part of like black culture and black British culture. Yeah there's whole family there, there's three generations in one roof and they're all dealing with the death of, of Gloria and the kind of tension and, and difficulty of that is further exacerbated when Lorraine's half-sister Trudy who's Gloria's um, daughter who Gloria left in Jamaica comes over to, to celebrate and to commemorate her mother's passing and to mourn her and um, yeah it's just a brilliant play it's the first play on record that we have of a black British woman's play being transferred to the West End it transferred to Traga Studios in December of 2018. Yeah, it's just great. Oh, I should probably tell you a little bit about how the play came about. So I actually spoke to Natasha Gordon. I was lucky enough to speak to her um, a few months ago, actually. And she was telling me that the play came about, well, partly because her, her grandmother had passed and her whole family decided to observe the full nine nights of the nine night um, wake which they hadn't she'd never done before and she said that she'd never felt so western in her whole life taking part and helping to host this this ritual and it's intense and nine nights of 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 hosting of of dancing of um of singing and telling stories and feasting and and she was kind of writing it as part of this group, this group of friends that she um, she has of other actors, she's a, she's an actor first, and before she became a playwright, and they used to meet up in the, in the National Theatre's Littleton Lounge, 
and they weren't getting the parts that they wanted these actors they weren't really being given interesting parts so they decided to write for themselves I, I guess in a way Natasha Gordon's play she's she's kind of written a part that she's written several parts several black characters that are, um, are nuanced and three-dimensional and feel real and I think that's why it was such a big success because when people saw this play regardless of race they could relate to all of these characters one of the things I love about this play is um the set is a meticulous recreation of Natasha Gordon's uh, her grandmother's living room so she gave a picture of her grandmother's um, living room to the set designer and they recreated her grandmother's living room and when you see the living room on the stage it looks like a home that many black British people will have walked into and seen not just black British people but it's got a particular aesthetic that Michael McKenna talks about with lots and lots of stuff lots of little yeah. bits everywhere lo- a lot of ephemera everywhere lots and lots of pictures lots of really vivid colours all kind of clashing together that I think we've definitely seen and a lot of other people who are part of black families will have will will know they'll know that aesthetic and it will ring true and so you felt like you were watching this play and you were walking into a space that you knew and I think that's a lot of the reason why it's so important to me because it was like I saw this play and I've seen it a few times and I felt like I was walking into a space that was like a space that I could be a part of not separate to which is how I feel like I know you've said it a few times about the theatre feeling like a place that doesn't necessarily welcome you with open arms Mm -hmm. but yeah um so shall we talk about the Windrush scandal I mean like it's a I don't really like calling it a scandal because it kind of makes it seem like a spectacle and it's not, it's an awful ongoing thing that has been purposefully implemented by our government as part of the hostile environment. Mm-hmm. People are still being deported now. But when West Indians came over to the UK, those who were part of the Windrush generation, they came as British citizens without the Nationality Act but they weren't properly documented. They weren't given all the documents were basically gotten rid of. They basically like shredded and stuff. The, yeah, they weren't given the proper documentation to prove that they were citizens, even though they were. But I wanted to say, given that this came out in April, 2018, given where we are now, with the ongoing, the Windows scandal ongoing, I've said it already, with people being threatened with deportation or being sent back to or I say sent back, being sent to countries they've never lived in, and they've lived here their whole life. It's still going on now. It's really, really important that we don't stop talking about it because it isn't because it hasn't stopped happening. What do you think about those stories? I'm talking about talking about like I guess the extraordinariness of ordinary black families and black life in the UK. I think. It's 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 important to to see. I think, especially historically, if we were to put it up on stage now, as in if we were to um, 
somebody was to write about what's happening now in terms of people being sent back to countries that they've never lived in, sent back in quotation marks, countries that they've never lived in, um, then maybe in 20 years' time, two people will be sitting on a sofa talking about that and talking about how important, how, how, how crazy that was and, and whether it's changed or not. I think it's hard to get across how important it was when this play was staged. Yeah. Because it was only two years ago, but it literally was staged at the same time as this news was breaking, and it's all it's a crazy, and, it, and it's it? all and it's all about it's all about commemorating a family member's passing, and with rituals that are very particular to Jamaican culture. Like mm. as we said, the nine night isn't it's a multifaceted ritual. It's not just in Jamaica; it's in lots of different places, but the specific version in this is Natasha Gordon's own take on a nine night. So she takes the original version that you might see in Jamaica and she transports it to London and it makes it, it's a lovely, in, interesting hybrid of Jamaican and British culture. I mean, give, it was stayed at the National Theatre Dorfman, which is often seen as their black theatre. Not, in, not as in, no one says that in so many words, but the Dorfman Theatre is the one that they put the black plays on that. Okay. It's the it's the, <laughs> it's the smaller theatre okay. that the black players get staged at. Okay. To me, there's something really important about like bringing ordinary, kind of ordinary black stories, like just like family squabbles and stuff, and like the idea that death is something that's universal. Everyone dies. Is it important for us to have those stories in a, I guess what I think of as a white space of the National Theatre. Because, you know, I've looked at the audience demographics for this play and it's almost 70% white. And that's like... Interesting. That's a lot, but that's a lot less than what it usually is for a play at the National Theatre. Is there... And, and the fact that it's a domestic drama, it's set in a home, it's set in one place completely. There's like a completeness to it in that way. Are they bringing black families home? Is it presence on that stage an important thing oh yeah 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 yes definitely is it is it important that there's like a ordinariness to it that it isn't about like yeah no they, yeah 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 that's i've been yeah but this is what i've been saying i just I, that's, that's what i just want to see i just I don't, it doesn't have to be black people suffering like it'd just be nice just to see yeah but like just a black family doing what families do in a comfortable environment. But do you mean comfortable environment as in like the setting of it being yeah, a home? The comfort, or do you mean yeah. as in the, the theatre is not comfortable? The, the setting of it being in a home. Hmm. Then I guess that's kind of a nice irony. If it's a, well, for me anyway, if in an uncomfortable theatre, in a comfortable setting. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Okay, so... I was going to ask you so many other questions about this, but I think I've spoken so much, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't. So, okay, I'll do two things. First thing is the patois. So when I was talking to Natasha Gordon, she was. I said to her, so how, I'm not, I'm going to, this is me paraphrasing, right? I said, like, how did you translate this complex black cultural ritual to a stage that isn't used to seeing such rituals, mm. right? And when you use the patois, when you... Because this play has a lot of patois in it. It's very beautifully written. 
were you worried that it wouldn't that it would be difficult for you know for you the white audience to engage with maybe and what do you think she said no yeah she was like nah she was yeah. like no didn't even think about it I wrote it the way I wanted to write it yeah, and it's should. And nobody it is, else would think about and and it is white people I'm, wouldn't think oh is this going to be palatable to anyone else that isn't myself so no yeah it, why yeah, she? yeah yeah well, I think I I loved it literally using patois on stage because I feel like there's like this unspoken atmosphere about the theatre I think anyway the, I feel like mainstream media depicts patois to be like gangster or like urban and it's not it's a language and I feel like this def- this obviously wasn't Natasha Gordon's intention but I feel like there's this kind of if you see it in theatre it's more legitimate. Yeah. It's like high art. Sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like that white audience would have been like, oh. Okay. <laughs> Not just these urban news saying Wag Guan. Guan. <laughs> My G. <laughs> but yeah, well, it's a legitimate well, language. Like, yeah, so we kind of said like this play, it got a lot of mainstream success. But I have questions to talk to you about in terms of what kinds of stories get mainstream success and what that says about how far we've come. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the fact that this play on record so far that we know of is the first play by a black British woman to be transferred to the West End. And that was in 2018. Does this mean we've made it? Does this mean that black women playwrights have made it? Does it mean that black... Mm-hmm. Playwrights have made it. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, unfortunately, it doesn't. Does I don't it? think. But um, but that was two no, years ago. Yeah, that was bare, that was like that was not yeah, not long at all. And I guess I have some things I want to say about that. The play's brilliant, so it deserves the success it got. It's great. My question is: there's a, a few. There's like a very small number of Black British playwrights work that get staged at the West End it's not seen as commercially viable. So in that year, in 2018, there were two big plays by black British playwrights that got transferred. It was Arinzi Tine's Misty, and it was Natasha Gordon's Nine Night. But I've heard someone talk about Nine Night as, like, Desmond's. Someone said that to me. And that's fair enough, that's your opinion, whatever. But actually, when, Desmond, when Desmond's came out, it was radical. There's something radical about seeing normal black life. And also, it's not normal black life because it's this play incorporates things that are to do with the like black ritual and then black aesthetics. So it's got it's got moments of dancing, like trance like dancing at times. It's got calypso music in it. It's got patois. It's got spiritual elements of it when people are communicating with the dead. Mm. Like it's an exciting, it's an exciting play, mm. but it's also grounded in like normal life. And it talks about mixed race mm. identity. It talks about the difficulties of being a black man and I guess raising a mixed race child. There's discussions of quote unquote what people call cafe latte, which I know we can both relate to. Mm. Being called caramel on the freaking time so i want to say that the radicality of putting a black family on stage for me is important i think it's i still think it's a radical thing to do Mm -hmm. because we don't see it enough and it's funny it's really really funny and we forget how important that is it's so funny and that isn't given enough credit 
Natasha Gordon writes really funny characters, and there's a character in it called Maddie, who's played by Cecilia Noble. Absolutely hilarious. Like, you laugh so much when you're watching when you're watching her. But the other thing is, I was going to ask you about this, because this is a play about a very specific cultural kind of mixing of, like, Jamaican culture and British culture. And, um... Do you feel like we see, do you feel like we see more mainstream depictions of black culture when it's to do with Caribbean yeah. cultures yeah, than all the other types of black culture yeah. throughout the African diaspora? I do, I definitely think so. And it's really interesting you say that because I, I was listening to a, to a podcast today, the Half Cast podcast, and they're talking about just like what, it, what it's like to be black and British or um I think just like cultural about the, the visibility of yeah. different, different black cultures in britain as well right mm-hmm. and chucky on it said this i'm gonna play it i feel that regardless of where you come from if you are proud to be black and british whether you come from anywhere some african country or whatever mm. there's a part of that that is influenced by be Jamaica and being Jamaican. Of course. A hundred. Well, so, so, so when you say that, there's like a part of you that is saying that of how much you love Jamaican culture at the same time. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting that he said that. And when he first said it, I was like, is that controversial? And I was like, well, actually, no, because Caribbean culture is it's, scattered it's all over. It's so important to British culture. Yeah, it's really important to British culture. Absolutely. It's... It's really, really important. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting point. And that, I think it connects to what I was saying about, like, are the stories that we see more of on, in theatre Caribbean? And I'm not saying they necessarily are. We've had there's been a, quite a lot of theatre recently that has been to do with black African mm-hmm. stories, like Inua's um, Three Sisters, like Tommy Will Kiss a High Table. Um, there's been a lot of that stuff too. But it's, like, kind of, interestingly... Um, Bola Agbaji, the playwright who wrote Off the, Off the End and Gone Too Far, she was sort of saying that she was writing those plays, and this was um, in the in the 2000s, and she's a really brilliant playwright. And she was saying she was writing those plays because she didn't see a distinctive black African experience or black African voice in the theatre. And I think maybe that's changed a bit now, but I think it's really interesting that like these um, the big mainstream success like Nine Night is about Caribbean culture. Mm-hmm. And because it's, you're right, and that's not, not not a bad or a good thing, it's a, it's a brilliant play, it's an interesting play, it's about a, a really extremely important part of British culture, right? Because mm-hmm. as we said, like, and what they said on the that podcast was Caribbean culture and Jamaican culture they were talking about in particular is so embedded into British culture, into, into all of it, into the music, into the fashion, all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And please don't sue us if we're not allowed to play that because I, I love the half cast podcast. <laughs> okay, so this last thing I wanted to say was about this play. Before we talk about Jasmine's play, I said this play came out just as the Windrush scandal broke in the same month uh, in the news. And there's a line in it, well, there's a few lines in it that uh, Natasha Gordon wrote um, where Lorraine is talking to her sister Trudy and about Trudy whether Trudy should have come to England 
and Natasha Gordon wrote these not knowing that they would have, I think, a lot of significance when the story broke. So Lorraine says to Trudy, You were right not to come. Mum wanted you, but England didn't. It didn't want her. It didn't want Ben. It didn't want him. It didn't want me. So you can stand there victorious. And she wrote that, and then she said, not long after, the, the news broke, and it changed the way that line, those lines, what they meant. And I really resonated with it. Mm. Yeah, true. But yeah, so I think it's a... I, 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 I go on about it a lot because I really like it. Because um, it's great. Mm-hmm. Shall we talk about the next play? Right. So, Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner. We had an interview uh, with this writer, Jasmine Lee Jones. But before that, let's talk about the play a little bit. Nadine, what's this about? Oh, so this play is really difficult to describe when you're talking about the plot. Jasmine Lee Jones won the Alfred Fagan Award with this play in 2019. And yeah, it's, a two, it's, a, it, it's about two young black British women, Cleo and Cara. Cleo has seen an article about Kylie Jenner, has called her the, the first self-made billionaire. And in response, in like kind of a response of rage and anger, she writes a Twitter thread discussing seven methods of killing Kylie Jenner and all the different ways they're really like political and interesting and and they talk about like the history of, of, of appropriation of cultural appropriation or the fetishization of black bodies like Sarchi Bartman they talk about colorism and the differences and the ways that darker skinned deeper skinned black women and lighter skinned black women are treated it's a really really interesting play and it's it kind of talks about like the, the hypocrisy of using this word self-made to describe someone who's been born into like a ridiculously rich family mm-hmm. <laughs> and who's become really famous <clears throat> by appropriating black culture mm-hmm. as, as the Kardashians have been it's been discussed a lot mm. but yeah so we did a interview with Jasmine about this play her like why she wrote it um, her feelings on it we talked about loads of stuff um, so I hope you enjoy the interview and let's take a listen. Yeah. Yeah, so the play that we're talking about is uh, your play Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner and I wondered if you could give the listeners a taste of what it's about. Yeah, so Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner is about, for me, the biggest theme is black female friendship and maybe companionship and also social media and it's basically the inciting incident if I'm speaking technically, is the protagonist, Cleo, discovering that Kylie Jenner has been announced as Forbes of the world's first self-made billionaire. I'm like, did I get the headline right? And it's it sparks this Twitter storm that she starts, which then in turn causes her friend Cara to come over to her house and be like, what are you doing, basically? <laughs> and then their whole sort of, the whole sort of fabric of their friend, friendship unravels in the process and they learn a lot about each other. Cool. Yeah, no, that's like a perfect um, synopsis without giving any um, any spoilers. 
I love the play like so much. But I think Nadia's got a question Thank for you. you. <laughs> yeah. So, what inspired you to write it? Hmm. It was really. This is before she was announced as a self-made billionaire. Before that, Kylie was. Kylie had just started her her makeup range, and I was just getting really annoyed that she just had this platform and could make lots of money. And I remember another playwright who, who was leading the group had said to me, but don't you think, but just as a pro- provocation, I don't think it's necessarily what she thinks, said, but you know, Rihanna's starting her own makeup line and it'll probably she'll probably make just as much money as Kylie. And I was like, I don't think that's going to be true. And lo and behold, it wasn't because the way that, well, thus far, because the way that I'm sure not everything's about money and that's another critique in the play of capitalism, but Kylie could accrue wealth um, at such a fast rate due to like the business model she chose and also um, what else prompted that well I guess it was um, also the fact and also by adopting these features of black women um, and using them for commercial gain and to sort of be like look at I'm kind of yeah bell hooks I haven't started reading it but bell hooks has some really good essays about this Mm. and about the origins of appropriation and how it like how it looks exotic on white women and how they use it to sell and white people and yeah it just started making me think about minstrelsy and appropriation and like I've always been slightly obsessed with like European beauty standards and how it shaped my perception of my own beauty when I was younger I used to have a massive insecurity about my nose being wide and I can't remember if it it was my mum who told me but you know think about the images that are around you and how how they can make you insecure and how they all live white women and 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 that type of thing and then I started to really get angry about how I'd see people just be like well that's the attractive thing and not question and where it come from in like whether that be school which is one of the yeah or what or just like when you're growing up and it's these tiny things that people don't necessarily think are significant but they, they really are and they really affect a person's spiritual growth in the Belfast way of saying things yeah I'm like I totally agree with you I find it really interesting that you were sort of saying the way that Kylie Jenner and that like a lot of white people try and use blackness to like you know to be more profitable like economically and and to look exotic or whatever um Mm. and it's like this idea we've talked about it before quite a lot this idea of like people liking blackness but only when it's being kind of shown to you from a white perspective um and that's one of the things that that play like it really like stuck with me like when um when I saw it it, like the way that it talked about um appropriation I thought it was like really potent in a way that I hadn't really seen done before and it was I thought that was so powerful one of the other things that I really like about this play is the way that the characters talk to each other and it feels so real and I wondered if that was important to you like if you think that the way that young people interact like especially the way it deals with like that digital space and stuff I've never seen that I've never seen like digital um like social media and stuff like that done on stage the way it's done in your play and I wondered if that was something that was important to you as it was developing and and the way and when you wrote it yeah authenticity is everything to me I think I rank it above all things because even if you don't really have a plot or, or 
my big thing was if my friends watch us and they're like, that's not real, or that's not how we speak, that would be the, probably the biggest failure in my eyes. I don't, of course I care about what the critics say and about what the people in the theatre think of it. Those things are important. But authenticity is the most important thing to me. I do care about the opinions of critics. And I do care about the opinions of my peers and in the industry. And some of my peers in the industry are my friends as well. But in terms of the friends I've grown up with and that you know, I've, grown, I've grown with as well and have known me since I was a teenager, they know how I speak. I know how they speak. And these are those characters. They're taken out of my heart. Um, so, and if they don't sound real, that's it, you know. So that really ranked the highest. And I don't know if that'll always be the same for everything I write, but authenticity is key to me. And with the internet, I feel like if it's wrong, you know it's wrong. Um, there was a lot of discussion. I have to thank many, and also our amazing designer, Raja, Elaine, our sound designer, and lighting designer, Jess, who were just like, so into what what does it feel like and and that was the best question we could ask ourselves not what does the internet look like usually because everything in theater is abstract inherently by the fact it's not actually real life so it's all about sensation so what does it feel like what does it rather than literally recreating it so that's why we didn't have any screens which i i feel like was the best decision mm. you know so there might be where they have have screens but I think the authenticity bled down to that level as well. Yeah, um, that's so interesting that you said, like, the sensation is the most, like, uh, important thing. Because um, that was, like, one of the things that I, I think... I think now you've said it, I'm like, oh, that's that's why it worked so well. Because it was, like, you could feel, like, the... Almost, like, to me anyway, like, I find the internet can be quite overwhelming, especially in terms of, like, social media. You really felt, like, the overwhelming kind of... Um, frenetic energy of that. I was just thinking about what you said about authenticity and um, I have like so many feelings about that word like as in like I think totally like it's so so important but sometimes I feel like when critics talk about authenticity they're talking about something else than what you might be talking about as a as a theatre maker as a playwright in terms of like what a and given that most people who are theatre critics are white men overwhelmingly like have, do you have any thoughts on that on how what they see as, as, as an authentic piece of work I think there's different versions of reality for everyone and therefore there's different versions of what is real and what isn't but I do think there's I do believe that universal that authenticity is universal in the sense you can feel when something's real I think it's a human thing and the construct of universality is very well constructed and it's a very device like I, I usually take the piss when people say but Hamlet's universal and I'm like what what is universal about this experience he's an aristocrat but there is there are universal themes and the way he's behaving and the is behaving we can all connect to because it's rooted in reality and something truthful and I think that's the question when when you do something truthful um like the quote the specific and the universal because I feel like there are I was just in Germany and the play won an award there and I spoke to the autistic artistic director and he was like it took me a while to read your play but I sensed that it was coming from you and and that was really interesting and and also and the idea that truth I also watched a play in like Hebrew when I was there and because it was real 
Hebrew and German, I could understand bits of it on a soul level, even though I couldn't understand what was being said. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I think basically that if you're telling the truth, it will resonate. People might not understand what you're doing, but I think it will it will it will resonate. And I've definitely had comments like that from there was an old lady, an old white lady that came up to me at the Critics Circle Awards, and she was like, "I didn't understand it, but I knew it was doing something." <laughs> uh, and yeah, that that's kind of how I feel on that subject. In the same way, I feel very. I've done a classical theatre degree, and I feel very out of my depth when I watch some Shakespeare's. I don't know what's going on, but. If it's true, I can feel it. Thank you. I feel like you definitely feel like the authenticity come out in the play. So my next question was that um, the play deals with colorism in a really interesting way that felt very real to me. Was was this an important um, theme for you to talk about? Definitely, because I've had loads of disagreements, arguments, arguments, heated discussions with my friends with the year and people in my life life about colorism and just seeing how it impacts the dailiness of life across continents like that andre 3000 t-shirt darker people suffer most why is that and why is it i'm very interested in this question and our prox our proximity as all races to darkness and what that means whether it's a level of mystery like the whole thing of tall dark and handsomeness yeah tall dark and handsomeness or whether that be literal i just read this brilliant book the vanishing half Mm. um and it's very interesting because it's about two sisters that can pass for white um one chooses to pass for white and one lives as a black woman and then that woman has a very dark-skinned child and the differences and the diffractions i don't know if that's word or right in this context in their lives are so interesting and it it really riles people up and i saw that from from like rehearsal i saw that you know, in me, and I see it in my friendship groups. So it was definitely an issue to address because it's there. It's not a thing. Yeah, it's there. It's so it's so potent. Mm-hmm. Was it something that you were a bit sort of skeptical about putting up and writing about, seeing as it's kind of, it's been kind of a taboo to talk about colorism, and was it something that you were a bit sort of felt a bit worried to write about, or no, not at all. I have to say. Not because I'm necessarily fearless or more brave than other people. I, I don't think I am. But it was just the truth and it was burning inside of me. So I had to talk about it. And I didn't feel like I had anywhere else to sort of talk about it apart from with my friends, really. And, yeah, there was no, like, at school, there was no... I, most of my year were white and I guess I could... No, but you can't really talk about it with them. There just wasn't... I needed to express it somewhere. And when this opportunity came up, it felt like the right and even when I did the first draft even though I didn't directly talk about colorism in it I asked that one actress would be darker skinned and one lighter skinned because I knew that was something I wanted there's there's an interesting politic there that I wanted to touch upon and it's interesting I was watching Dear White People the other day in that the woman with I know people have this critique of Dear White People anyway but in that the woman with the voice who has the actress voice is very light skinned and she's mixed race and she looks very racially ambiguous and very beautiful in that way and her, her, her best friend is a dark skinned one and I just wanted to see that inverted and wanted to see a darker skinned woman at the centrefold of a piece also with with a lighter skinned friend to, to talk about those issues to bring them up and also but not I didn't want this to be an issue piece which in some ways I guess it is but I wanted there to be an op- 
opportunity for those things to be raised because it, it, it's boiling, it's like a pot simmering. I think it's an important conversation to have and I think it's an important conversation to see on stage as well. So Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, again, it's like one of those things where I saw it and I was like, oh my God, like, I mean, I've seen this talked about before in theatre, but, like, it was really, like, just so, so real and, like, current and from my own perspective as, like, mixed, uh, like, black mixed women, like, you know, like, there's so much privilege in being, being light-skinned, like, it's, but, yeah, and it's such a contentious topic in the wider community, like, and it's, it is really hard to talk about, but it's really, really important, I think it's fantastically written about, um, yeah, I really, I'm really interested to know about what your experience as a young playwright is right now. Like, I'm really interested, like, to hear about what your experience has been like, how you found it, and stuff. And what is it like to be a young playwright? It's very exciting, and it, it's it's a privilege if we talk about the youth part of that because it is it is true that there is a fix. There's society still has a fixation on on youth. And being young, so I do get a lot of, and I'm not trying to undermine my talent, but there are also loads of other talented people that are slightly older than me or older or have been doing it for much longer and there's a disparity in the opportunities when you're fresh, young and new and hip and hot. Um, so in that way, it's great. But I also recognise that there is a disparity here that needs to be discussed. And Winston Pinnock, when I did the interview with her, well, the conversation with her, with Arifa for The Guardian, made me, I, I was aware of it before, but made me strikingly aware of it. Um, but, you know, I feel very fortunate. I try and get, not not at the expense of myself, because I have to look after myself, that comes first, but I try and take all opportunities on. In terms of theatre, I've had a couple of things cancelled this year, but I'm just, that's a tide of life. And yeah, it's given me, I think the skills are so transferable, which enables to me, me to write in TV, and enables me to try other mediums. Um, I love it. I love writing, and I love that I get to do this for a job. I love making up stories basically and, and getting paid mostly to do it so so the reality is it's good cool um so if there was anything that you could change about the theatre landscape right now what would it be and why I just wish people would come to watch plays like they'd watch Netflix or Amazon and then need because there's such a political thing I think why people love Netflix and Amazon is a it's cheap it's far cheaper than theatre and you get a lot more material and b you don't have to go anywhere you can get on your phone you can get on tv but to just incite people to take that political act of getting up and going to the theater and like how they would have done in shakespearean times because it was one of like it was the only like live storytelling medium or storytelling medium there weren't films bar books but it's, it's that's very different now there's more synchronicity between a tv show and a theater show i think anyway people might disagree but I just wish there was a way of making people invest in that in theatre and political arts and there's great I think the UK is probably some of the best people in the world at getting a young people and well we still have things to fix of course but there's just some great education programs and getting people that don't necessarily go to the into the theatre and great like I was so enamoured by how many people went to see Barbershop and I'm like, how many people have said, you need to see this, it's so great. Um, and and well, nine, nine, you know, but there needs to be more of it. But my question is, how do we get people to invest and see that, you know, this is an investment, but you do get 
a lot back and just not see it for a certain sector because there's still this sort of elitism and I wonder how we can bridge that gap. That's really interesting you that you said going to the theatre is a political act. I was wondering if mm. you would mind like explaining a bit more what you mean by that. Well, I meant that's sort of inspired by years ago. I was watching this documentary about Susan Laurie Parks, who I think is great. I love her essays. And she said, at the time she said, oh, um, someone asked her if her plays, like she identifies her plays as being subversive and, and, and she identifies her work as being subversive. Or, and she was like, what is subversive? Get, sometimes getting out of bed and leaving the house can be a sub, act of subversion. And I definitely feel like that. I did that today and I walked to the park and I was like, this is the biggest act of subversion I can do right now. Nothing I can write can top this. And I think I, I was talking, when I said about it being a political act, just literally the act of, and I'm colluding it with the word subversion, of getting, of getting out of your house and going somewhere to watch something that's imaginary in imaginary circumstances when you can just do it on a TV for much cheaper I think is really subversive and I think but I think it's really cool it's like going to I don't want to be clumsy here but going to like the pyramids or something going on this summit going on this summit there's, it's smaller but there's some, some something microscopically that you're doing that is quite similar or going to um, a place of worship that's really far away that you've always wanted to go to. Um, there's something about it. It has theatre has that kind of holiness for me personally, um, and I think it could have that kind of holiness for everyone. I'm an optimist, and some people don't like theatre, which is fair enough. But I think there's something when you see again going back to the authenticity thing, even if it's not necessarily an enjoyable experience. If it's true, it's true, kind of thing. Um, and so I think doing that, like not doing something that's easy and doesn't really make sense, is really political um, and really inspiring. And I now that I've said that, and especially now in lockdown, you see that difference because every we're all in we're in a second lockdown now. Technically, we're all in our little boxes, and to and it's really made me think about that that journey and the voyage, especially for people that I went to and even before that I loved acting and doing all those things and yeah even before that I I was going to the theatre so it, it it was still a voyage but especially people that don't work in theatre and they just like watching plays I think such a beautiful thing I really like the idea of like I really like what you said about there's something um was it you said holy about the theatre like so, as, if, as if you're going to like a a communal like place of worship um mm. what do you think about that as someone who doesn't go to the theater a lot nadia what do you think about that yeah i think that's really interesting i think yeah i liked what, what you said i think especially we were talking about before about the authenticity like feeling to be in in that atmosphere and feel it so yeah i i i'd love to be able to go and see theater like like i watch netflix i like, just go and and see plays like yours I wanted to ask you about like it, whether you feel responsible to tell certain types of stories over other certain types of stories. We've been asking a lot of theatre makers throughout this podcast about the label um, black playwright and I wanted to ask you how you feel about that term. I don't have a problem with the term black playwright because I am a black playwright and I don't find the word blackness to be limiting. Um... 
I mean, there's an argument to say then white playwrights should be called white playwrights, but this is maybe... All of these things are construction, but I don't... Um, but I think we have also, even before whiteness constructed blackness, and sometimes it's known there was already a thing of blackness. I, d- I, don't, I don't... I personally don't have a problem with it. I don't feel limited by it. There's a question of who then who gets to own it because white playwrights get just get called playwrights. Well, I hear that, but I I also personally just don't find the term black playwright limiting. I'm like it, it it's what I am. Um, do I feel more pressure to tell certain stories? No, I just feel the need to tell certain stories. It's not a pressure, and I don't feel like. Like great Brandon Jenkins, Jacobs Jenkins wrote appropriate. There's no non-white people in it. Great, and one day I might want to do that, and and I might want to, you know. But I am interested in being the centrifugal. Like when I say me, I mean I'm a black queer woman and umpteen other things as well. But what is it to be the centrifugal? Like I just feel like. They talk about this thing of there's only seven stories, which I don't know if is completely true. I think the basis is true. But um, I think there's so many different ways we haven't seen a story told yet from a perspective like mine. And if we have seen it with a character like mine, it's not in the multitudinous ways we can see it. And um, it's less a pressure and more of a need and I... I don't at the moment, but this could change. I mean, Debbie has what play is that? Um, Stony Murray. That's meant to be all white people, and the point of it is, is that they have to speak like quote unquote black people, whatever that means. And I might want to write something like that. I mean, in that case, it's more of a political point. Appropriate is a bit like that, but not completely, because um, he's writing them as white people and how white people invited commas speak. But I don't. Um, at the moment, I don't have a... But I, sh- I should be able to... Black playwrights, or playwrights who are black, however they choose to identify, um, should have the right to write whatever they want. I honestly believe that. But at the moment, and it might not always be like this, it might change tomorrow or in an hour, I am I tend to be more interested in stories from perspectives that are closer to mine. But I don't feel the pressure. It's a, it's a need. I want to do it. Cool, thank you. Yeah, like that's um, that was a really like such a rich answer. I'm really excited to see what you're doing next because it just sounds like um, yeah, it just sounds like a really exciting time. No pressure <laughs> or anything like that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I um, I wanted to ask you about like what's happening in the theatre industry now in terms of representation, particularly like of blackness and queerness like and if you've got any thoughts you want to share with us on that yeah I think I'm I'm seeing more and more and I hope we can just keep seeing more because I feel like every I remember reading this article about Kwame Kramar and Paulette Randall on a panel this is years ago and they're, they're being asked do you think that there's a renaissance in black theatre mm-hmm. yes and Paulette was like no I don't believe it yeah because what you know it means by by definition it's going to go or disappear at some point and unfortunately I think she was right um, and she was being real and we don't I don't I love the term renaissance and I also love 
like the Harlem Renaissance, everything that came out of that movement. But we don't need a renaissance. We just need consistency. And because it's not my... I could talk about the amazing plays that were on last year, like Juva High Table, which had both blackness and queerness. Mm. But how do we keep... And there are people working very hard to keep those voices alive. So I don't want to diminish their work. But how do we keep it going and maybe the answer to that is partly how do we get people to watch theatre like they watch Netflix but I I am keen to definitely see more black queer characters and black trans characters I mean I thought Travis's play was extraordinary burgers and I can't wait to see what they do next but just more more of, of course we need more and how do we get more and let, let's bring these people into the theatre and into this arena because, yeah, we're the ones that know about performance, probably most of all. We have to perform in our lives and to survive sometimes. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, do you feel like... Do, was there a piece of work or a, a performance or a play that you watched that you thought was daring or you thought that were, thought that inspired you or... Yeah, loads. Um, to top of my head, I have to say A Raisin in the Sun. Um, I feel like I'm always trying to, even though Seven Methods is so not A Raisin in the Sun, always trying to write a version of it. Also Nine Night, I have to say, which I feel like is a companion piece to A Raisin in the Sun. I feel like they're in... Com- I haven't spoken to... Natasha's a friend of mine, and she was my mentor when I was at Guildhall, and still is now in many ways. She... I'd never spoken to her about it, but I do feel like it's in conversation, and interesting that the protagonist in that play I think Lorraine's the protagonist in Night Night mm. Lorraine Hansbury um, but I, I still you know I'm so inspired by both plays Raisin, A Raisin in the Sun was the first play I read and I think I felt my jaw just dropped at like it felt like I was seeing my family on stage even though they're Chicago's 1950s there's something universal about it and like blackness being on the periphery and not quite being included even if we're included slightly more than they were of course and and just seeing a family drama that the domesticity but seeing black people in the domesticity in a way that I'd seen I don't think I'd read any Arthur Miller at this point shortly after I read Death of a Salesman which I didn't really understand funnily enough I think I'd understand it now but I completely got a raise just like her political stridency I was reading I ordered this um, Adrian Kennedy book and she has this essay called The Problem with Lorraine Hansberry and I was thinking about this anew but just some of those passages with Asagai were just so I hate the phrase ahead of their time because by virtue of you talking about in the time it clearly wasn't it was a debate that was going on but it, it just blew my mind even even the things I didn't understand I could connect to in a very visceral way and I was like I want to do that I want to do what she's doing this is amazing I can't believe she she wrote this play and told the truth of me now. Um, and finding out that she was queer later on just blew my mind even more. I was like, oh my God, there was a version of me um, decades before. Um, another thing, I love, also love trying to think about works that have really changed me. And one of those works, I rewatched this when I was with my friend and her boyfriend in Berlin recently, Searching for Sugarman. I love documentaries. I love non-fiction as well. Um, and that, you know, this sort of thing of the making of a man, like, or woman, or 
person, as it were, seems to really inspire me. And has, it made me realise I wrote a play that was really inspired by that, but I didn't realise that. But just these kind of things of... Because I'm so, I'm so interested in identity, but that doesn't necessarily always mean racial, sexual identity, just what makes a person in the dailiness of their lives and documentaries that sort of pull that apart. Like, that's a brilliant documentary. Just interests me. There's no bounds. Um, I also love Man on Wire for that reason, although it's slightly different. But, but A Raisin in the Sun is definitely up there. It's probably my favourite play, as, as is Nine Nine. Amazing, thank you. Um, but I never I, the, what you just said about um, connecting those two as almost like you Nana know, like being a companion piece. I never thought about that before, but I like that. Make, that's like so. I can really see that. Like I can really see see that now that you've said it. it yeah, like um, the idea of like being brought into someone else's home and then feeling like it's your like like I know that home. That's that's a home that I I know, and especially like. In terms of where Nine Light was was staged, um, and you all sort of, I remember watching that play and being like, I feel like I belong in this theatre space in a way that I never felt like before, and that was so important to me when I watched that play for the first time. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for like agreeing to talk to us. It's been like it's been so nice talking to you, um, and I'm so excited about what what's to come with your work thank you okay so that's all we've got time for today people but thank you to jasmine thank you to natasha gordon um for nine night and for writing such brilliant plays um if you're interested go and take a look at these plays in the black archive if you're interested to hearing more of um the half cast podcast i think they're available on Platform, Ooh, podcast podcast. Like, just Places. like we are yeah so yes yeah go check out the Black Plays Archive if you would like to thank you for listening and we will see you next week with the last episode of the series peace out bye this podcast was made in partnership with the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama the National Theatre and supported by the London Arts and Humanities Partnership if you want more information about these podcast episodes, go to the Black Plays Archive website.